You know, if you think about it, everything has a starting point. Every job has a starting point. Every journey has a starting point. Even you had a starting point. Now, maybe your parents intended for you to have that starting point, but if they didn't, hey, we're still glad that you're here this morning. Every single thing has a starting point. Your, your first romance, it had a, a starting point. Some of you remember your first romance. You're five years old and you fell in love with your cousin. <laughs> Thankfully, you quickly outgrew that. Unless you live in West Virginia, then maybe it's, you know. <laughs> Everything has a starting point, including your faith. For many of you, your faith started when your mom or dad or maybe a grandparent said to you, this is what we believe. Or maybe your starting point of your faith was a pastor or a priest that said to you, this is the Bible, it's God's word, and everything that's in it is true, and you're never to doubt it. And you know, when you're a kid, that's pretty easy to believe, but then you get a little bit older and you start to go, wait a second, is there actually any facts that back this thing up? Is there actually proof for my faith? And so what happens is some people, they actually start to investigate it then. The claims of Jesus, the claims of the Bible, and in that process of investigating, it actually strengthens your faith. For a lot of people, though, what they do is they say, you know what, it's just a bunch of fairy tales, and you completely walk away from your faith, and you walk away from the church. But then a lot of people, what they end up doing is they're like, okay, I still like sort of believe it. I mean, I, I know that there's a God and, you know, maybe I'll show up to a church occasionally, but it really doesn't impact your day-to-day -day life. You have a sort of a form of faith. You believe, but there's still that lingering doubt in the back of your mind of, could any of this actually be true? Now, if you fall into either one of those final two camps there that I talked about, I've got good news for you this morning. One of Jesus' very best friends, a guy by the name of Peter, he had doubts in his faith. Now here's what you need to understand about Peter. Peter was one of the first followers of Jesus. He was one of the very first ones that when Jesus said, come, follow me, that Peter just dropped everything and left it all behind to go follow him. But then Peter watched as his best friend got arrested and put on trial and then crucified. And Peter's like, wait a second, this isn't part of the plan. His whole world came crashing down in that moment that Jesus hung there on the cross. Peter has got to be thinking, wait, wait a second, Jesus, if you really love us as much as you said and you're really as much control as what you said that you are, why are you leaving us alone? See, Peter thought that Jesus had come to, to free them from a Roman oppression, but now he's gone. And Peter's got to be saying, God, why? Why? We thought this guy was it. Why? Why is this happening? But everything for Peter changed that very first Sunday after Jesus' crucifixion. In John chapter 20, verses 1 to 9, another one of Jesus' best friends, this guy by the name of John, he, he writes this account. He says, on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. And she ran to Simon Peter and to Jesus' favorite disciple, that is John, and said, They have taken the Lord from the tomb, 
We don't know where they have put him. So Peter and John started for the tomb. Both were running. John and Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and he looked in at the strips of linen there. He did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. Peter observed the linen cloths lying there and the kerchief used to cover his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but separate, neatly folded by itself. Finally, John, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed, but they still did not understand from the Scriptures that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Peter walked into that tomb a doubter. He walked out and became the leader of what eventually became known as Christianity. What changed for Peter in that moment? Was it that he suddenly had this brilliant flash of insight into Jesus' teachings? He's like, oh, now I know what the parable of the Good Samaritan is all about. No. What changed for him is he walked into a tomb that should have had a body, but the body was not there. And in that moment, everything changed for Peter. That was the starting point of his faith. That was the starting point of Christianity. An empty tomb that should have had a body lying there. I want you to put yourself into Peter's sandals for a second. When you walk in and and the, the tomb is empty, you ask yourself what? Why? Why why is it empty? How is it empty? And there's a couple explanations you could possibly come to. Now, I'm going to actually talk about those explanations this morning. But before I do that, let me just sort of backtrack a little bit and make sure that you understand that from a historical standpoint, both Christians, Christian scholars, and listen to this, and atheist scholars all agree on some very simple points. First, that there really was a man named Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago. All scholars, atheists and Christian scholars, believe that Jesus was nailed to a cross. All the scholars believe that he was put into a tomb. All scholars believe that three days later that tomb was empty. In other words, nobody doubts, and I shouldn't say nobody, but even 99% of atheist scholars, historical scholars, that when they study everything, they admit that the tomb was empty. The debate then is, why? And how? How is it that the tomb was empty? Well, there's three theories. If you're taking notes this morning, the, the first theory is this. That someone stole Jesus' body. If you've ever studied law before, or how many of you are fans of law and order? Maybe, you know. <laughs> okay, more, more people that do that. Fans of law and order. You know that anytime there's a suspect in something, that for somebody to be considered a suspect, they say they have to have means, and they have to have what? A, a mo- See, you do watch law and order. <laughs> you have to have means to do it, and a motive for doing it. So who would have had the means and the, the motive possibly to steal Jesus' body? Well, let's look at three different suspects. The, the first one would be this. It's the Romans. 
Now, the Romans certainly had the means to steal the body because the Romans were the ones that were guarding Jesus' body. Pilate was so afraid that somebody was going to steal Jesus' body because Jesus, remember, was going, hey, you can kill me and I'll come back to life. Well, the, the Romans wanted to make sure that nobody like, came in and stole the body and you know, came up with some sort of hoax that Jesus had risen again from the dead. So they had stationed 16 guards 24-7 to be guarding the tomb. So they have the means to do it, but they don't have a motive to do it. Because again, they want Jesus to remain in the tomb. They want to discredit him. They want his, his little group of people that have been following him around to sort of disband and go their separate ways. So they have the means, but they don't have the motive. Now, by the way, the uh, Romans later, this is what they claimed happened, is that Jesus' body was stolen. Suspect number two, then, is the Pharisees. These were the religious leaders, and these were the people that were constantly butting heads with, with Jesus. Jesus was walking around going, I'm God. I can forgive sin. You can kill me. I'll come back to life. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders, are going, that's blasphemy. So, do they have the means to steal the body? Not really. Because they'd have to somehow sneak past all these Roman guards and take Jesus out. But again, they have the, the same uh, uh, wrong motive here uh, as what the, the Romans did. They didn't want Jesus' body to be taken they wanted his body to remain there in the grave, so they don't have a motive. Absolutely no reason that the Pharisees would want Jesus' body removed. Again, they wanted to discredit Jesus. So that leads us to the third and, quite frankly, the most likely suspects, and that would be the disciples. Now, do the disciples have the, the means to be able to get in. Well, like the Pharisees, probably not because they would have had to gotten past the 16 Roman guards. But let's assume for a second that they did sneak in and they steal the body. And then on Sunday, they all come to the tomb and they go, oh my goodness, look at this. It's empty. Whoa, how did that happen? Let's, as let's just assume that for a second. Let me ask you a question. When a robbery is taking place, in, in this case that you're doing it right under the noses of the people that are guarding whatever it is that you're trying to steal, are you usually, you're going to do it quietly, as quietly as you can, right? But are you in a hurry or are you just sort of taking your good old time? What do you think? You're, you're in a hurry, right? You want to get done the job as quickly as possible. Now, one of the things you have to know about Jesus' day and time is that they didn't have embalming fluids like we have. And so what they would do is once they would take a, a body and th that was dead, they would wash it, a ceremonial cleansing that they would give to the body. Then they would wrap it completely in linen. And then they would take spices and they would lay the spices all on top of the body. And then they would wrap 
the body. So they were mummifying the body, but it had all these, these spices and experts that said probably anywhere from 20 to 40 pounds of extra weight just in spices to help you know, preserve the body and keep the smell down. So Jesus is encased in all this linen. But do you remember what we read earlier? Remember what John says? That when they went into the tomb, the strips of linen were lying there, but then the, the, the kerchief, the, the piece of cloth that Jesus had over his head, who remembers what it said? What was done with that? It was neatly folded and lying separately. Does that sound like somebody was in a hurry? No. Not at all. All right, so then, again, let's, let's just say that somehow they did all that. What's their motive? Well, anytime there's any type of hoax, it's usually done for one of three, if not all three reasons. Money, sex, or power. Think about the, the latest hoax that has been in the, the news recently, Jesse Smollett. Here's a guy that, that faked a hate crime because he was dissatisfied with his salary he was getting from the show Empire. So what was his motive? Money. He, he fabricated this hoax because of money. And if you look at some of the other details, there's a little bit of a power play in there too because of, you know, he's trying to discredit President Trump. So any hoax, it's always money, sex, or power. So let's think about the disciples. Why would they have come up with a hoax? What, what out of that would they have gotten? Well, is, is it money? No, the, the disciples were notoriously poor. And in fact, any money that they did get, they would give away, and they were encouraging others, give away all of your money to help the poor and the needy. So it's not money. What about sex? No, it's the disciples that are saying to people, look, Sex is reserved for one man and one woman in the confines of a marriage. So it wasn't like they were doing this so they could be rock stars and all of a sudden start sleeping with a bunch of women. No, they were saying, no, no, no. Sex is reserved just for a man and a woman in marriage. What about power? Were they after power? The answer is no. In fact, they didn't want to have anything to do with that. They went so as far as to say, you know what? We'll give up our own lives for this which we believe in. So it wasn't that they were trying to attain something. They were willing to give something up, their lives. And I share this every single Easter. You say, many of you have heard me say this before, but it's so important to remember. People die for lies all the time. But nobody will die for a lie that they know is a lie. You understand the difference? People die for lies all the time, for uh, something that they truly believe in. Think of 9-11, the, the terrorists on 9-11. They truly believed that they were doing Allah's will. And they died for that. But if you know something is a lie, if you know it's a hoax, You'll try to keep up the story as long as you can, but when it gets to the point where you'd have to give up your life for that lie, you'd say, no, 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 I made the whole thing up. And what we need to understand is that 10 out of the 12 disciples 
gave up their lives. They were martyrs because they kept saying that Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose again from the dead. Peter himself, who we're looking at here today, he had to watch as his own wife was crucified, and then the very next day Peter himself was crucified. You don't do that if you're just making it all up. And that's such a a huge proof to us that Jesus really did rise again. Because, I mean, maybe one of them had been dumb enough to die for it. But once you watch one of your friends die, you're like, I'm good. (laughs) But 10 of the 12, they give up their lives. You're saying, well, who are the other two? Well, Judas, he had already killed himself. And then John, who we read earlier, he was the only one. But if you remember, John is the guy that was put in prison as a life sentence. So he died in in prison for his faith. All right. So theory number one is that somebody stole the body. I think I showed you why maybe that's a bad theory. Here's the second theory. And that is that Jesus never really died. This is often what's called the swoon theory. And what people that sort of propagate this particular theory say is that, well, Jesus was on the cross and he just became unconscious and the Romans mistakenly thought he was dead. They pulled him off. He was put in the tomb and then in the coolness of the tomb, he was sort of revived and that's how you explain the empty tomb because then Jesus just sort of walked out. Well, let's look at a couple problems with that. Here's the first problem. That is that the Romans were experts at crucifixion. I mean, this wasn't their first rodeo. This was something that they had done over and over and over again. This was the means of of punishment for people that they would use to help discourage other people from doing bad things. This was like the, the worst form of punishment was crucifixion. And so they would crucify these people. And people would watch them suffer and die there on the cross. And what the Romans were basically saying is, look, if you cross us, we've got other crosses in the back room that have your name on it. So they knew what they were doing. And in fact, in in the story of Jesus, the, the, the Romans were so surprised that Jesus had already died that they said, well, just to make sure... They took a spear and they thrust it into his side, right into his internal organs, just just to make sure he was really dead. Here's the the second problem then. That is that Jesus was nearly beaten to death prior to his crucifixion. Now this is pretty common, that they would beat him almost to the point of of death. And the, the, the reason why is that if you remember how crucifixion works, is there's spikes put in between your wrists on each arm and then, and then through your feet. And you don't die because you bleed to death. It's a very painful way to die, but you don't die because you bleed to death. You die because you asphyxiate. In other words, you can't breathe. You, you drown in your own bodily fluids. And the reason for that is this. You're, you're hanging there and the weight of your body starts to sag down. And of course, that's very painful on the wrist. And so what are you going to do with your feet then? You're going to push up. But what else has spikes through it? Your feet. So pushing up, that becomes what? 
painful. And now you're back up and you start to sag. And you push up, you hold it, it's painful, and you start to sag. Over and over and over. People can actually last on a cross for many, many hours, if not even days, doing that until you just get so exhausted that you can't push yourself up anymore and all the fluids in your lungs just build up and you basically can't breathe and that's how you die. And so what they would often do is they would whip these guys almost to the point of death so that they were bleeding a lot so that their body was wore out faster, so that they wouldn't last on the cross pushing up and pushing up for nearly as long. Cicero, who was a a philosopher, a Roman philosopher around the time that, that Jesus lived, he actually wrote this. He said that many people didn't even make it to the cross because they would whip them so badly. How many ever saw the Passion of the Christ movie? That gives you a pretty good idea of just how bad this was. Jesus' body would have been completely tore up, all over, bleeding immensely. And now he's put there on the cross and he's had a spear stuck into his side. Here's the third problem. That is that Jesus would have no credibility. Let's, Let's just assume for a second He does survive the whipping. He does survive the crucifixion. He does survive a spear being thrust into his side. And that now he's placed in the tomb and they've wrapped him all up. And all of a sudden he's like, I'm awake. Now it seems far-fetched, but let's go with me. Let's just say that didn't happen. Now what's the problem? You're wrapped up. You've got to unwrap everything. You've got to take it all off there. And now in your weakened condition, you've got to go up to the stone, roll it away, make sure that the Roman guards don't hear you sneaking out, And now you got to go to your disciples, beaten and bloodied, and say, look guys, I rose again from the dead. I mean, just forget that I can barely breathe and barely walk and talk, but I'm back! Jesus would have no credibility. If that was truly his condition, would they really have said, whoa, we so believe that he rose again from the dead that we're willing to lay down our own lives for this? No, of course not. Ten of the twelve would not have died saying Jesus rose again if that were the case. No credibility at all. So if nobody stole the body... And if Jesus really did die, what's a third theory then? Well, the third theory is that Jesus did what? He really did rise again from the dead. That's the good news of what we're celebrating here this morning. I mean, after everything that we've looked at here today, and by the way, I only gave you just a a small sliver of some of the evidence for Jesus' resurrection. 
and some of the arguments against. But after everything we've looked at today, yes, it's miraculous, but it's also the, the simplest explanation, and it's the most compelling out of all the explanations. Now, after Jesus' resurrection, the disciples, they were so convinced that Jesus had really risen again from the dead that they started going out and telling every single person they could come in contact with that Jesus lived, he died, he rose again, and he has the power to forgive your sin and give you a brand new life right now and a brand new life in heaven forever. That was the message that they continued to preach over and over and over again. And the Romans, they weren't happy about that message. The Pharisees, they weren't happy about that message. So you know what they threatened? Stop talking about Jesus or we're going to whip you. We're going to beat you. We will kill you. But guess what they kept doing? They kept talking about Jesus. Again, people die for lies all the time but you won't die for a lie that you know is a lie. So the question becomes this. If the resurrection is the simplest and most compelling out of all the theories, then why is it that more people don't believe it? Well, there's a, a German theologian. His name is Wolfhart Pannenberg. And he said this. I love this quote. He said, The evidence for Jesus' resurrection is so strong that nobody would question it except for two things. First, that it's a very unusual event. And second, if you believe that it happened, then you have to change the way that you lived. Now, there are some of you that are here today that you don't want to believe the resurrection because you don't want to believe in the miraculous. But there's far more of you that if you don't believe, it's this quote here. This is the reason why. It's because you realize that if Jesus really did rise again from the dead, that there is huge implications for your life. Because if Jesus really did rise again from the dead, that means that he really is God. And if he really is God, that means you have to listen to his words. It can't be about you anymore. It can't be what you want to do in life anymore. It has to be about him. That means we've got to listen to him and, and obey him instead of listening to ourselves and, and doing what we want. It means that we make him the final authority in our lives over our salvation, over our morals, over our politics, over our lifestyle. Jesus gets the final say. It isn't what you want to do. It means you're going to have to listen to him. Again, I love this quote because he says that if you truly embrace it, it means you're going to have to change your life. And that's exactly what happened to Peter. Once he sees Jesus alive, he realizes that life isn't about me anymore. And Peter came to two realizations in that moment, and there are two realizations that you and I need to come to as well. The first one is this, that Jesus really is who he said that he is. Peter had grown up Jewish. And none of what Jesus did fit his idea of what the Messiah was going to be like. And when Jesus rose again from the dead, I'm sure Peter still had a lot of questions. But yet he had witnessed it all with his own eyes. 
Sure, maybe he still wanted to know about creation and, and Noah's Ark and why does God allow suffering. He, he, he had a bunch of questions. But the main question for Peter was, what happened to the body when I walked into that tomb? Where was it? It wasn't there. And he had to say, how did that happen? And of course, he saw Jesus alive along with many, many other people that saw Jesus alive, that all testified that he died, he was buried, and he rose again. Everything for Peter was outweighed by simply thinking back to the empty tomb. Now, a few months later, after Jesus' resurrection, Peter and John, they, they get into an argument with some of the religious leaders, and the religious leaders were basically saying, here's, Reason X and reason Y and reason Z, why Jesus couldn't possibly be the Messiah. And again, they, they warned them, stop talking about this Jesus guy, or we're going to punish you. Look at what Peter and John say. Luke records this. Luke was a historian. He wrote down a, a lot of the, uh, the life of what happened with Jesus and then also with the early church. He writes this in Acts chapter 4, verses 19 to 20. But Peter and John realized, or, uh, replied, Do you think that God wants us to obey you rather than him? We cannot stop telling about everything that we have what? Everything that we have seen and heard. Everything that we have seen and heard. They had seen the empty tomb. They had seen Jesus alive. And again, I'm sure they had a lot of questions. But because of the empty tomb, they all got to a place to say, you know what, no matter what you say to us, no matter what you threaten us with, we're not going to stop talking about the resurrected Jesus because we've seen it and we've heard him. So let me ask you a question. What is it today that's keeping you from faith? What questions do you have? Some of you, it, it may be, what happened to the dinosaurs? Or why does God allow suffering? Or did, did Moses really part the Red Sea? Those are all great questions. But the greatest question you can ever ask yourself is this. How would I have explained it if I walked into that empty tomb that morning? That's the, that's the big question for all of us. Was the tomb empty or not? And as I said earlier, both Christian and atheist scholars all say, yes, it was. So the next question you have to ask yourself is, how? How did the tomb get empty? You've got to answer that. And again, there, there's a lot of theories but the more and more and more you study it, the more you see that the evidence is just stacked up that Jesus really did rise again from the dead. So the next question is, will you let the magnitude of that event eclipse all the other questions that you have? And again, I'm not saying that your questions are wrong. I've been a Christian for 25 years now, a pastor for almost 20. I still have questions. It's okay to have questions. Again, every single question that I have, I always go back to the empty tomb. Because once I have that question settled, a lot of the other pieces 
start to fall in place. Again, how you explain the empty tomb and your answer to the empty tomb does have huge implications for your life. So this is something we all need to wrestle through and think about. So not only did Peter realize that Jesus is really who he said that he is, but then number two, he realized that my past no longer defines me. You know, Peter was known as a bit of a hothead, and Peter was the one that cowardly denied Jesus right before Jesus' death. When Jesus needed him the most, there was Peter denying that he even knew Jesus. And after Jesus' resurrection, not only does Jesus forgive Peter, but he restores him as well. No wonder Peter then writes this. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Peter says, God is so good, and by raising Jesus from death, he has given us what? He has given us new life and a hope that lives on. And that same new life and that hope that God gave to Peter, that Jesus gave to Peter, he wants to give to you here this morning. I don't care what kind of mistakes you've made in the past. I don't care if it's drugs or alcohol, if you've had an affair, if you've stolen something, if you've been disloyal, if you've been a horrible parent. I don't care if you have an anger issue, if you're bitter, if you've been a racist in the past. None of that matters because in Jesus you can get forgiveness and you can get a brand new life so that you're not that person any longer. The old you can die and a new you come alive in the same way that Jesus was put into the grave dead and buried but he came back to a brand new life that's what he's offering to you this morning forgiveness of your sin and a brand new life in the same way that the spirit breathed life into the dead body of Jesus in the same way that the spirit breathed courage into a cowardly Peter in the same way that the spirit breathed love into a murderous Saul who would eventually become the apostle Paul God wants to breathe new life into you. I started this morning by saying that every single thing has a starting point. The starting point of Christianity was an empty tomb. And the starting point of your true faith can be right here this morning. But it's not enough just to acknowledge it intellectually. Here's what else Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. He says, The Lord isn't slow about keeping his promises as some people think that he is. In fact, God is patient because he wants everyone to turn from sin and that no one be lost. You see, sin is what separates us from God and what Jesus is offering to each and every one of us here today is a new life and forgiveness. How do you go about doing that? Well, in the video that we watched earlier, that was the story that we read there in in John, of Peter and John running to the tomb. We've talked a lot about Peter today, but the other guy that was in that video, John, here's what he writes in, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins to God, he can always be trusted to forgive us and take our sins away. Join me in prayer. Jesus, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity we've had to come to, to celebrate you and your resurrection. That you didn't remain in the tomb any longer. But you came back to life. And you came back to life so that we might have lives ourselves. A brand new life. Where we're forgiven of our sin. Where we're free from our sin. Where we can have you as our leader and and you're going to give us the, the way to go. Jesus, we know your way is always better than our way. That your plan for our life is much better than any plan we could possibly have in our own minds. 
But we've got to humble ourselves and admit our sinfulness and admit that we need you. That apart from you, we're separated from God for all of eternity because of our sin. So Lord, help us right here in this place to acknowledge our sinfulness, to ask for your forgiveness and ask for your leadership. In fact, with every head bowed and every eye closed, if you're here this morning and you've never prayed and asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins, you've never asked Him to come in and take control of your life, to be the leader of your life, and you're ready for that fresh start, you're ready for a brand new life, if that's true of you, could you just slip your hand up nice and high so I can see it, I'll acknowledge it, and then you can put it right back down. Is there anyone here this morning, Jesus, forgive me of my sin. Come into my life. Cleanse me. Make me whole. Give me a fresh start. See, here's what we need to realize, that that God is a perfect God, and heaven is a perfect place. And God can't allow sinful people like you and I into heaven because of our imperfection. Even just one sin in your life disqualifies you from heaven. God let you in, it would make heaven imperfect, so he can't, your punishment is to be separated from him for all of eternity. But the good news of what we're celebrating here today, in this entire weekend, is that Jesus, God in the flesh, God himself, lived the perfect and sinless life that you can never live. And then he died on the cross, shedding his blood, so that your sins might be forgiven. And to prove that he had that power, he rose again from the dead. That's what gives you brand new life, a fresh start, a new hope. It's one final opportunity. Anybody here this morning, do you need that fresh start? Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Come into my life. Take control of my life. Lead me, guide me, direct me. Anybody here? All right, I don't see any hands. Father, um, by no hands going up this morning either, it means that everybody here is already in a relationship with you, and that would be excellent or it means that maybe there's some people that are here and they're still sort of kicking the tires on this whole thing called christianity they want to go home and and study it all for themselves and that's fine and i hope that they would find exponential a safe place to continue to come back to and just investigate what this is all about and lord i pray that in the same way that many of us here we went through that investigation ourselves and Finally, the the evidence became so overwhelming that I know for me personally, it would have taken more faith to not believe that Jesus rose from the dead than to have the faith that he did rise again from the dead. And so, Lord, if there is anybody here that's in that place, I I pray that they wouldn't just hear this message and then walk out and and not pursue it in any way. I, I pray that they would study it for themselves and that your spirit would speak to them and what decision that is that they need to make. Jesus, again, thank you. Thank you for my last 25 years of being in relationship with you. I know that it's way better than the previous 20 before that. Lord, I just pray that each and every one of us that are here today, each and every one of us that are either watching this or they're they're listening to it, that we would all be reunited together again in heaven one day. Not because of us and how good we've been, but all because of you and how good you are to us that your grace and your mercy have forgiven us of our sin and given us a fresh start and a brand new life. Not just a life right here and now, but a life with you forever and eternity. We look forward to that. Thank you again, Jesus. And it's in your name that I pray. Amen.